I'm Christina Rea, and welcome to Breaking Out of Breaking In, a practical filmmaking podcast about taking your creative career into your own hands and making great work to get seen without playing the Hollywood game. Or at least while changing the rules. Hi, I'm Brie Castellini, your other co-host, and today we are launching our Representation Matters mini-series, talking to writers about how better on and off-screen diversity and inclusion matters to artists and audiences alike. We start with our largest episode yet with guests David Radcliffe, Shay Merzai, Jamie Perry of the WGA Disabled Writers committee. Before we dive in, we do want to remind you that we have a free monthly creative inspiration newsletter, which you can sign up for and find at the bottom of our website, breakingoutpod.com. But with our biggest episode yet, I don't want to waste any more time. So welcome to the WGA Disabled Writers Committee. Who are you and what are you currently writing on, everyone? We'll start with Jamie. Sure. My name is Jamie Perry. I'm a TV writer. I'm not currently on a show. I sold two shows to NBC last year that I'm just wrapping up the development of and, you know, waiting to hear decisions on. Yeah. And just trying to maybe come up with something to to pitch for development season this year. Amazing. We'll do Shay next and then uh, end with David. I know when we have multiple people, sometimes everyone gets awkward about who goes first. So I'm it's it's my decision. Shay, you're up. (laughs) Yes. All right. Cool. Thanks so much for that sweet spot. All right. Uh, I'm Shane or as I, uh, um, I am, uh, 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 I happen to be a person who stutters, but uh, I also am a feature as uh, um, and TV writer as well. Uh, I think if I had to pick in between them, uh, I would say I, I'm more of a, a feature writer, but uh, uh, I have staff before and uh, uh, I think that's definitely a goal of mine to get back in another room. Uh, um, right now, uh, I'm currently out with a feature adaptation uh, of a book, which is a really exciting thing for me because uh, I'd never actually done a, a novel's adaptation before. So uh, I'm very excited about that one. And uh, I'm also currently uh, um, executive producing uh, a one-hour drama with uh, with an, a, an AA's PI writer uh, set in uh, in uh, Hawaii. So uh, I'm really excited about that whole process right now. Very cool. Very cool. And David, what about you? David Radcliffe, uh, co-chair of the Disabled Writers Committee. I'm also a steering committee member for the Think Tank for Inclusion and Equity. So shout out to those folks. I was an alum of the Disney writing program and wrote on The Rookie during its first season and then wrote on Waffles and Mochi on Netflix, puppet food show with Michelle Obama in it. And then most recently, and I'm developing a couple different things, but um, I don't know what I can say about them. And then most recently, I wrote on an animated show on Disney Junior that's coming soon. Uh, that was a really special experience that I think is going to address maybe some of the things that we're talking about in this conversation today. So Amazing. very excited to be here. Also, Thanks. I will just say, as the only one of us who has children, it is really fun <laughs> to be like, talk to my kids and be like, yeah, my friend David wrote that episode you're watching. <laughs> they're much they're much more impressed by anything David has done than anything I have done. <laughs> I've heard that's common. Kids are never impressed by their parents, even if they're extremely mm-hmm. famous, but they're impressed by their parents' famous friends, which is lovely. <laughs> keeps you, keeps you, you know, modest. That's right. Um, so you are, you are all here as a group because you're all either the co-chairs in Shay and David's case or the vice or no vice chairs. Co- you're correct. Please talk to me about the, <laughs> t- talk to me about the disabled writers committee. What is it? What is its function? And how do the three of you approach your role? Like what are, what are, what distinguishes what the three mm-hmm. of you do for the committee? 
I'll start off by this. Both myself and Jamie uh, were recently elected uh, um, in our past term, uh, and we joined our our former incumbent chair, um, who's not currently co-chair, I guess, uh, and David Radcliffe. Uh, um, um, uh, I really think he might be best at explaining this, but uh, uh, I would like to hammer home that uh, in spite of our different titles, uh, I think we all operate as a cohesive group and I think all of our opinions uh, just have equal weight. And uh, uh, just, I would like to say uh, that just, I wouldn't make a move without either of them because uh, I think they're fantastic, except for David. <laughs> well, he's the old man in the group, so who cares what David thinks? But I guess he's the status quo. He's the status quo. We're the hot young new thing. Me yeah, and Shay. He's the old man right now. <laughs> Just took one. No, year. but in reality, year, David I'm, has I'm done, done an excellent job. He had, he took over from a very a long term chairman of the committee who did great work, but was but yeah. So David has come on and 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 he's done a great job in the last year. And then Shay and I just came on to leadership in the past couple of months. David, do you want to do like what the, what our committee is? Sure. Yeah. But first of all, I mean, I was going to say essentially the same thing that I feel like hopefully we have a, a nice balance between the three of us. And it's been so exciting, exciting to have Shay and Jamie sharing leadership decisions and somebody to like swap emails around with and decide like, is this, is this good messaging or is this a good idea to, you know, meet with so-and-so and any, and to have conversations like this is extra exciting. Uh, so yeah, I came into the guild, as Jamie said, after um, Alan Rucker had been chair of the committee for quite a while and had really helped sort of birth what it was. Mm -hmm. And in the past year, you know, with COVID and everything, all of our meetings have been in Zoom. And one of the things that we miss is that in-person interaction, even though we also recognize that Zoom makes things a lot, in some ways, a lot more equitable and a lot safer for disabled people, especially during COVID, but also in terms of writers' rooms and everything like that. And equity is really at the center of a lot of what we talk about in the committee and across a lot of the DEI committees at the Guild, as you'll discover when you talk with other folks. And one of the cool things about our group is that it really touches a lot of different facets of life and a lot of different experiences. So what is what is accessible to me might not be fully accessible to Shay or Jamie or to uh, you know a deaf member of our community. And so Keeping all those things top of mind is really very educational and exciting, and I think a great benefit for the industry at large when we get them to a place where they are uh, able to embrace all these different aspects of life. So that's a big part of what we do is have those tough discussions, um, bring in cool guests who are either very strong allies of the disabled community in, in different areas of the industry or are themselves disabled and are making change within the industry. So this past year we had uh, Jim Lebrecht come in, who was the Oscar-nominated co-director of Crip Camp, Kira Allen, who starred in Run, DMA from the Disney uh, writing program. So we're trying to expose people to as many different voices as possible, both on both ends of the conversation, and also hopefully inculcate a culture where disability becomes a, a fuller part of the DEI spectrum. So I want to thank both of you for having us in this conversation at all, because usually DEI doesn't extend to talk about ableism in any in any full way. So thank you so much. And I'll much. also say too, it, one one of the great things about having Shay come on board too, is that Shay is also part of the Middle Eastern Writers Committee and the LGBTQ plus committee. So we already know that, you know, the identity of disability is at the intersection of so many others. So it's been nice to have Shay's input and also the connections that Shay has with those other communities. Oh, stop, Jamie. 
<laughs> yeah, no. Um, I feel like that's a, a very valid point as well, too, because I think what's so uh, um, special, for lack of a better word, about our group is that uh, being disabled, uh, it doesn't really exist in a bubble per se. I feel everyone who has a disability is already an inherently intersectional person as well. Mm-hmm. Yep. Totally. And disability is so much a function of environment more than anything else. So the the disability itself, often for many of us that have lived with our disabilities for years and have grown in many cases to a sense of comfort with our disability, sometimes the most disabled. (laughs) No, no, but you're not comfortable with David's disability. That's different, Shay. (laughs) It's like so uncomfortable. (laughs) Sometimes the most disabling thing is the perception. Yep of disability, not the disability itself. And so, and, and one of the strengths of having a committee where so many people have so many different types of disability is it it causes us all to check our own assumptions and privilege. And so the things that I might try to set up in a meeting, for example, as someone who can hear, it might take a, a half a second for me to think about, well, what about our members who can't hear or who have low vision or something like that? How can we make, you know, that's why I, when we set up this interview, I asked about transcripts for podcasts and that sort of thing, because we do have deaf members that would love to jump on, you know, what is that? You folks will have to remind me that that service that folks were using, that's basically like you get on a call uh, in the industry and everybody chats. Oh, Clubhouse? Clubhouse. Uh, And now it's Twitter Spaces, right? Yeah. So the thing with Clubhouse was like, we started to see all these people get on and like learn the inside secrets of the business. But if you're deaf. Yeah. And Clubhouse doesn't transcribe any of its stuff. So that's just another barrier of entry for yeah. somebody who's deaf or has, um, you know, low hearing. So yeah. these are the kind of things we think about. No, that's great. And I'll also say, I mean, and it's, I'm the millionth person to to make this observation, but it's always important. You know, our community is the only marginalized community that any one of you could join at any moment. You know, like mm-hmm. maybe you're not disabled right yeah. now, but you could be in an hour or someone you really love could be. So to me, it's like so silly and self, <laughs> self-sabotaging self not to care about disability and the way that disability is represented because you live long enough and you will become disabled. That's that's no, a threat. That's, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's a very aggressive and, and that's part. <laughs> Yes, I will disable well, you. That... <laughs> <laughs> that's part of the mindset shift too is the, and I think it's a, a mindset shift that all of us go through, whether born with your disability or acquiring it later is thinking about the areas in which it becomes a positive thing in your life. Um, for example, there's a there's a low likelihood that I would have met anyone on this call if I if I weren't a disabled person. And there are a lot of value, valuable relationships in my life that are a function of me, you know, speaking up about something disability related or looking out for someone else who needs assistance. And so it really does open up a whole other area of your life that ultimately leads to other stories too. And we don't see many of those stories on TV or in film, or if we do, they're often mm-hmm. written by non-disabled yep. people who, who may who may think disability is still <laughs> a sad thing. Temporarily able-bodied, is that? <laughs> well, yeah. yeah, I mean, yeah. Um, I think David also makes a fantastic point there too, because there are uh, just a number of benefits as well, because uh, just, uh, just, um, just, uh, speaking for myself, uh, uh, just, I very much have always considered myself a person with uh, just, um, a high levels um, of patience um, and especially 
and, and especially a high levels of empathy because uh, I really couldn't imagine uh, um, who I would be if I didn't have a speech impediment like this because it, it really informs uh, a worldview. Well, and that's interesting, too, because of the three of us, I'm the only one with an acquired disability. So I wasn't disabled until about six years ago. I'm a paraplegic. And one of the but, but one of my first uh, experiences when I landed in a wheelchair was getting to know a, a fellow disabled writer friend of ours, a woman named Catherine Beatty, who um, currently she's writing on NCIS. And um, mm-hmm. she took me out to the skate park and taught me WCMX, which is like skateboarding, but for wheelchairs. Mm-hmm. And so my entry into the world of disability was blessedly, you know, without the taboo of looking at my wheelchair as a prison or, you know, I'm bound to it or what it what I got to see it as pretty much immediately was wheels on my ass <laughs> mm-hmm. that could make me go really, really fast and provide a lot of fun and thrill at a time in my life where I was looking for that, um, looking for a chance to live again. So, so I know a lot of people who haven't that haven't had that experience, and I feel bad for them. Or they go ten years, twenty years before they have an experience of the freedom, um, the 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 joy, the positive aspects of it. And to me, you know, aside from WCMX and all those things, the number one boon of being disabled is the disabled community, uh, being part of a family, and realizing that you know we are a culture unto ourselves. We just like any other sort of marginalized group, we have shared values and norms and language and, and, and being embraced by that family of disabled people was something that was really magical and special for me. It was not something that I was born with or grew up with. So um, that's been lovely. Very found family trope. Since Absolutely. We're talking to writers here. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> I was just going to say, hopefully the committee itself also provides some of that in yeah. the sense that, you know, we, we are, I think at last count, we are point disabled, openly disabled people, because there are a lot of disabled people who don't have these candid conversations. Sure. Um, Some of whom are executives who I've met who've said, you know, between us, I have XYZ condition. And if I disclose it, it could harm my career. Should I disclose it or not? And that's some overlap that we see in solidarity with the LGBTQ community is that that question of disclosure. Yes, exactly. I wanted to talk about that, too. Hopefully that it is the committee is a place of empathy because we are at last count uh, openly disabled people are only 0.6 percent of the guild, Mm -hmm. which doesn't mean that there are very few disabled people who want to write. (laughs) It means it it means that there are, you know, sometimes sometimes visibly physical barriers of entry and sometimes systemically bias driven barriers of entry. Like we, we get hit from both sides because you might get past some of the bias barriers to get into the business at first. And then you get on set and you realize, oh, wow, nothing here, <laughs> nothing here is set up the way that, that I maybe prefer. And so who are my allies in this space to figure out the best way to be my best self? And also to, you know, on the, on the other end of that, I think there's a lot of framing around disability as a deficit. <laughs> And I think that carries over into production. So people think about hiring a disabled person and they think about, well, this is going to add more time or this, you know, the, pa- the patient's question that, that Shay brought up. But what um, my friend, uh, Caitlin Young, who is in a power chair and she runs her own post-production company, and she's found that when she's on set and they put ramps everywhere for their post-production person, the crew saves two hours because the crew is using those ramps yep. too. So it's actually a net benefit to have more disabled people and more disability accommodation in these spaces. But 
nobody talks about that except disabled yeah. people. <laughs> yeah, that's and, uh, really so, interesting. Um, yeah. yeah, so I think there were also two extremely good points that uh, um, my friend David has brought up here. So I think the first being that uh, the, the population numbers in our guild is about just 0.6% or something like that. Uh, um, I would like to also add that in our Middle Eastern committee, uh, that just, that's also been established too, around a figure of 0.3%. So uh, it really is a, a, a small number on both sides, but it also does speak to the fact that in, that in our, our general population numbers, about one in four people have a disability themselves. And uh, um, I think we've already discussed how there are, um, are multiple ways for this to happen, like whether it's like a, a, a congenital disability issue or, or like a later uh, in life event, this is um, an accident or uh, an inborn uh, just health issues or something like that. So. I mean, I think my final point here is is that while uh, much of our committees are actively uh, working on this, uh, our overall employment numbers still are uh, absolutely abysmal. But it, it yeah. does seem that they are uh, just at least getting better. Yeah, and I will say too. I think what I always explain to people as like the most galling aspect of that underrepresentation is that it's not as though Hollywood doesn't like our stories. It's not as if they're not always giving themselves Oscars for telling such a great story about <laughs> disabled people, right? So it's sure. like, you yeah. like the content, you just don't like, you know, it's like, you like the disabled story, but you don't like disabled people. Mm -hmm. You know, that you don't want to cast a disabled person, you don't want to have a disabled writer, you certainly don't want to have disabled crew. So that, to me, like I said, is the most galling aspect that... We're 25% of the population, we're 0.6% of the Writers Guild, but, you know, there's there's really, really um, wild statistics about how often you are likely to win an Oscar if you play someone with a disability. And of course, if you are not also disabled yourself, because that, they don't like that. <laughs> Sure. Well, let's let's talk about that, because yeah. that's like obviously a big part of conversations about like hashtag representation matters. But like, can the three of you talk about either specific examples or observations that you've made about why it is so important to have actual people who have lived experience not only portray disabled people in this example, but also write for them? David, you had a great tweet about this this morning. <laughs> <laughs> I did. I had. I, I won't share the specifics of the conversation I had, but I had a pretty extensive conversation with an actor recently who had been in a scenario many times before, and it's a scenario that a lot of disabled people in this industry experience, where they're brought on to consult, meaning, hey, tell us about your experience with your disability. What was it like growing up? Tell us like the horror stories of how you know X Y Z, or the great stories, mm -hmm. and. They soak all that up and maybe give you a little check, no credits of necessarily. Not. So, and, and credits, as I'm sure everybody here knows, like credits are how you build other opportunities in the business. So credits are, and you know, a lot of disabled writers on the writer side of things are still lower level writers, including the co-chair of the disabled writers yeah. committee. So I have to walk a line of like being deferential and keeping my head down, but also sure. speaking up. But anyway, so I had this interesting conversation with this actor and it's some variation of conversation I'd had a bunch before. 
And it was it's frustrating because it doesn't lead to further opportunities for that actor. If that actor is just there to like, tell me, tell me your story, we'll repackage it in some other form and see you later. Right. And specifically, David, what you were saying about like, it's, it's not a topic like you would want, a, you want to, oh, yeah. sorry. Thank you. So I, I, thank, <laughs> I, I always, I always say it's not a technical skill. Disability is not a technical skill. Like if you want to call, and as someone that wrote on a cop show, I know how the cop side of things in the business works. Like they have someone on set who's a technical consultant for like, this is how you clear a room or hold your gun this way or approach the car this way. Lots of cool things that you learn. That's technical consulting. That is not what the disability experience needs because disability in ways similar to race or gender or sexuality is a lived experience with all that that entails. And to Jamie's earlier point, there is a certain like culture of disability. And even within the broader disability culture, there's deaf culture. And I don't, I wouldn't expect to be an expert on deaf, like, don't call me in to be an expert on deaf culture, right? So I think the industry needs to move away from the idea that disability is a technical skill and more to think of it as an underrepresented, as the underrepresented community, lived community that it is. And that way we can get more people into more spaces to do impactful work and then gain credits and, and credibility and rise. So we don't have so many disabled writers and actors just scrambling for like, maybe I can be an extra in the background of something somewhere sometime. You know? yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so I think I want to take a little bit of a step back here because what we're talking about here uh, actually has a name. And this is like a practice called um, doing um, a sensitivity read. As mm-hmm. I always feel, <laughs> right, I very much feel that, that that's just like a nice way of saying, hey, if we're able to put just a disabled person's name on this, then obviously just like the show is all good. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. The professional equivalent of I have a black friend. That's exactly why I exactly right. 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 Exactly so, right. Yeah. So I think a better way is like to stop these is, is essentially hires a person who's able to write this story from from the ground up. So it wouldn't have to, um, it wouldn't even have to have a sensitivity read because it already starts off as a very authentic piece of, of work. Yeah. Yeah. I also think that like sensitivity reading is such an, a tricky concept in general, because like, obviously, even within a lived experience, there is so much diversity and how one person experiences a true thing and feels something is sensitive or not is going to be completely different. You see it on Twitter. You see like when people get upset about something on Twitter and the, you know, they, and the showrunner or whomever producer gets on and says, well, we had so-and-so, you know, consult on it and they said it was fine. (laughs) It's Mm -hmm. like... So frustrating when it's working at odds with what the larger disabled community or the disabled activists are, you know, the line that they're pushing. And also you have to wonder why they're saying it's fine. They might be saying it's fine because they want to foster a strong relationship with you for the next opportunity. So they're not going to tell you, you know, if if they're a lower level writer who's just trying to break in or or sustain, you know, momentum in the industry, they're not going to say, actually, (laughs) you know, you you got a lot wrong here. And also part of the reason that they might not do that is because the process has moved so far down the track already that they're really only coming to you shortly before they go into production. So they want this you know, they want you to say it's okay. Right. And so sometimes people do. Yeah, you could say, oh, it's a quadriplegic, not a paraplegic, like changing a line of dialogue. But you can't say like, why have, the, you know, like, why have this character mm-hmm. have a miracle cure? The entire, but like the entire mm-hmm. project is based on this arc of a miracle cure. Like you can't, 
it's baked in at that point. And I also will say, you know, on the positive side of it, I have found at least, you know, when you do have disabled people writing on something, um, working on a project, we can go to like more exciting and interesting places, places where like, if I was writing a character of a different race, like I'm not going to like leap into the hot button <laughs> parts of that. Like it's not my experience. And I want to be respectful and I I, I don't want to speak out of turn. But when you actually have people who, who, who um, live that identity, who own that identity working on something, you can get into trickier, more interesting things because mm-hmm. you it's coming from the person who holds that identity themselves. So, I mean, certainly there can be lots of debate and there always is within these communities and certainly the disabled community is, is no exception. But being able to have real conversations is something that is valuable when you actually have disabled people writing for you. Yes, I think there is also a final part of this as well, because I think David had mentioned uh, that with regard to a sensitivity read, that's, uh, there's a lot of writers or or whoever who actually can't speak their mind for, I can fear of not being able to get the next job. But I have heard stories from uh, from my other Middle Eastern writer friends who have been asked, who have been asked to consult and have spoken their mind and said that this stuff is not working. And then eventually they just are never heard from again. Right. Do you call the cops, Shay? Like, <laughs> um, no, so, uh, I misspoke a little bit. Just, I mean, uh, just, um, I meant that their notes are never heard from again. Yeah, so sure it's basically, not. okay, yeah. uh, our writer was brought in, our sensitivity yeah. read is done. It's, yeah. It obviously didn't go great, but hey, it's still, it's, uh, at least we tried. Like, Yep. Yeah, yeah, hand the, one. yeah, hand the notes to legal so that, you know, we, ha- we crossed our T's and dotted our I's. Yeah. Or, you know, as is the case for a lot of underrepresented communities, there's the like, oh, we couldn't find the right person. (laughs) You know, we we really we gave it a good college try. We just couldn't find a talented disabled writer. And the interesting thing now from where I'm sitting in the guild is like, I know when I hear that stuff, I know whether that place has reached out. Like, obviously, if you're if you're making a good faith effort to look for a disabled writer, one place you might check is the Disabled Writers (laughs) Committee at the Writers Guild of America West. It's almost like it's like, what they're for. (laughs) Yeah, right. So like, you you know, there's an easy way to find out if they actually, you know, check things out. And uh, yeah, and I also want to emphasize, like, we're not, I don't think any, anyone in our community is like, interested in dragging a particular project yeah. we're actually yes. there to help and you know and we also understand as working writers the precariousness of various projects and yeah. and all the notes yeah. that come in and like studio and network and you know or development execs and so on and so we're not you know i think there's a difference between talking to disabled people who really want to break in but haven't versus those that have broken in and done the work. Cause once you are on the other side of these conversations, you start to see why people get, you know, everyone sort of retreats to what they know already and what has been safe and what has been proven. We're gonna, all gonna work with the same people we've worked with before so on and so forth. So, but the, our c- committee is full of professional writers with disabilities that are available to help and work. Yeah, and uh, I think uh, a final thought there is that uh, I don't think uh, any of us are in the business of shaming other people. I mean, I will certainly say that there are like a few things out there that that actually must be shamed. Sure, but um, 
I think we're very interested in having much more of an open approach where yeah. these executives or people who are making these other shows and films, like it serves everyone a lot better if there is an open door policy. Yeah, I think that's important. Yeah. And I'm I'm curious because obviously your committee has so many wide reaching implications and has so many members with very different experiences. Even the three of you uh-huh. have wildly different experiences, have different needs in a room and on set. So how are you making sure that you are balancing all of the disparate needs of a allegedly single community when obviously <laughs> I think you could probably all agree that there's a there's a wider diversity even within your community than in probably many of the other guild committees? Right. Uh, so uh, first of all, I think David, uh, I would probably be able to uh, make a better answer for this question. But uh, a major point that I, I really want to hammer home is, is that having uh, a fully accessible room or making sure that uh, a writer's accommodations are met. A lot of these asks are very tiny. It's like having tiny. just like a way to get upstairs or, or having lots of like a showrunners, in my case, who was uh, I was willing to hear me pitch all of my ideas that actually might take a bit longer, but like I basically just really only needed an extra levels of patience, uh, and maybe uh, for people to think that um, I make funny jokes. <laughs> basically, it. It's all we want is validation for our funny jokes and a little bit of patience. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So in terms of balancing the committee for everybody, I mean, to be totally candid, it's always a work in progress. So, you know, there are times when we'll be in the middle of holding a Zoom meeting and I get a message from someone that, as as you can see on this video call, the lighting in my apartment is not ideal. So like sometimes for meetings, I'll bring in more lights because I'll get a message from someone saying, you know, I can't, I can't read your lips someone who has low hearing. And so those are things that I have to be aware of and adjust to. And so, and it goes back to the empathy point that Shay made earlier. I think by bringing more disabled people into these spaces, I don't think disabled people, and you know, this is at risk of massive generalization, but I think that there's a, a stronger aptitude to figuring out like, how can I be helpful? And am I gonna, am I gonna take offense at the fact that you need something? Mm-hmm. And I think that a lot of non-disabled people, their their initial uh, trigger is like, "Well, I tried," or like, hmm. "Why are you mad at me?" Yeah. <laughs> Whereas if you if you're someone talking to a disabled person, hopefully there's that that pivot is a little bit is a little bit quicker, you know, because it's at least for me, I feel like it takes more to offend my delicate sensibilities <laughs> if someone if someone needs a little help like i that's that's fine so yeah but it, it's a conscious decision to make spaces equitable and but it's a necessary one especially as like covid is going to change a lot of people's lives a lot of in 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 rapid time mm-hmm. and people are going to come around with disabilities that didn't have them before and so we're all going to need to be a little bit more empathetic of each other and and towards ourselves i never want to get into like super crypt territory but i will say <laughs> i will say that there's so because I was able-bodied most of my life and that I became disabled about six years ago, I have seen how my approach to life entirely has changed. I've seen the benefits of a new way of thinking about things. When you are when you are in a situation where your body is suddenly outside of the norm that it used to be within, you didn't have to think about how am I gonna grocery shop? How am I gonna, you know, drive a car? You don't have to think about those things because they were just givens. And then 
you know, you find yourself in the situation where you no longer know how to do anything and you've got to rebuild that. And so for me, and, and this is, I mean, David talks about this a lot as well, like singing the praises of disabled writers, like we are people who know how to do that. And like I said, I have seen my, literally, I feel like my brain has become more elastic and more flexible. I wit and it's and it's it's a skill that transfers over from like by the way, like grocery shopping is not a problem. I thought it was gonna be a problem. It's not a problem. Did you know that you can push a cart with your one hand and like push your wheel <laughs> with the other? Or even like I learned from a disabled friend that you can kind of like do this like serpentine motion and you can move the cart, right? So things that seemed impossible, or like I guess I'm going to have to get my groceries delivered forever. And realizing like, oh my gosh, this the fix was so easy, but no one ever forced me to think of it before. And that absolutely translates to my writing. There are moments where it's like, I don't see how I can make this work. And I'm like, well, I figured out grocery shopping. So I, I know that there's an answer here and I've just got to figure it out. And I think too, when, when yeah, with a, when a member of the committee says, hey, we need this, you're like, okay, great, let's make it happen. And I'm always so much more, I think there's two types of people and, and this is I don't know. There's more than two types of people. <laughs> this is one of those <laughs> things. But there are, I've noticed there are two distinct kinds of people when you come to them. Like a few years ago, I wanted to go horseback riding. And I have friends who do hippotherapy and like do, you know, a, adaptive dressage. And so I've seen it all over the place. But I started calling these horse ranches up in Malibu. And they were like, what? What? You, wait, wait, like they were so baffled by what I was asking. Like, do you have, can I ride a horse at your stable? And they were like, uh, uh, I don't know, the liability. I don't, uh, uh, and then they, you know, and then we end the call. And then um, I took a trip to Yellowstone later that year. And the people in Montana, I was like, hey, I'm in a wheelchair. Can I ride your horse? And they're like, well, shoot, we never done that before. We might as well try. <laughs> <laughs> Those are my favorite kinds of people. And that's who I aspire to be. And I think that's how my disability has changed me, that I'm one of those people who goes, all right, let's figure it out. By the way, are we allowed to swear on this podcast? Because Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, oh, God. God. oh, God. Oh, oh my God. We should make that part of our Here it comes. top of show thing, Christina. <laughs> <laughs> we got explicit tag on Apple Podcasts nice. for sure. That's yes. fucking great. I want to I start over. Can we start over from the top? Because I have a lot of things to add. <laughs> oh, you know, David, just... just Separately, just add all your cuss words right here. Like, fuck, cunt. Yeah. Yes. Yes. <laughs> and then the editor will go back words. in and, and splice it into. Exactly. <laughs> oh, funny. Sounds good. Yeah. We're, we're a full service production company here. Perfect. I love that. Um, so, uh, yeah. So, I, was, I, was, I wanted to piggyback I was, I was off of all those excellent points because I was. I maybe can't say this as well as, as Jamie just explained, but uh, I think it goes back to a very basic thing about how necessity is the mothers of invention. So yeah. I would like to think that a lot of people who have a disability are always forced to work extra hard. So I'll use myself as a personal example. Um, just as I speak with a, a stutter like this, uh, I constantly have a, a stream of running words in my head, where if I anticipate a, a stutter or a silent block, I automatically have to think of a, a switch word I can use. So I think that it's just, I think that it's just actually is a, a huge part of the reason why uh, I like to think that I developed a, a really large uh, vocabulary because- uh, Yeah, you're a walking thesaurus. That's exactly what I am, but <laughs> I had to be basically. So yeah. 
uh, it's just, it's just, uh, I think that speaks to a much larger point as well. And this is based uh, in stigmas and stereotypes, but a lot of um, a lot of able-bodied people always assume that a person with a disability uh, is not as capable, or or perhaps is not as smart. Like it's just, uh, it's just, um, it's just a running stereotype about people who stutter uh, are that they're dumb, or perhaps they're not um, as smart as like the average person. Uh, I work my ass off where I then this is I eventually became a straight A student. I was on a master's degree at one point. So like I feel that it's like the fact that we have to, that just, uh, we constantly have had to work a lot harder. It's just, it makes us uh, extremely qualified for these jobs. Yeah. Yeah, 100%. Yeah. I whenever I have these kinds of conversations, I always think of that Modern Family episode where Christina or Christina Vergara, I don't know why I said Christina. Sophia Vergara's character <laughs> gets upset about like, do you know how smart I sound in Spanish? That's and exactly I think right. comes up a lot. Yes. <laughs> yeah, like yeah. The, yeah. The, the second language speakers are constantly yeah. assumed to be less than. It's like because right. I have to translate everything right. in my mm-hmm. head from my right. native tongue. That's exactly and that's right. and when you think two seconds, you're like, "Oh, wow, you're probably like genius level." Right, especially yeah, which like especially the the disdain coming from Americans who speak one language, yeah, <laughs> yeah. and barely that. Let's be That's honest, we're that. all on yeah. Twitter. We've seen the shit people are posting. Yeah, to to Shay's point, which I think is great. There's, I mean, there is a way to frame disability as we have throughout this conversation for all these positive benefits, and I think it's useful for writers when they interview for jobs. I, I have two quick thoughts on that. One is that. When I interviewed for The Rookie, a lot of the conversation that I had with the showrunner, Alexi Hawley, was I don't know anything about police work. All I've learned from about police work, I've, I've seen from other TV Columbo. shows, but <laughs> Columbo mostly. <laughs> but, but as I understand this pilot, it's about someone who is who has to work twice as hard to get half as far because he's older than the other rookies and like people you know, wonder if he's up to the job and so on and so forth. And he has to keep a smile on and keep his head down and and whatever. And I said, I have felt some version of that as someone with cerebral palsy all my life, you know, you're like walking with walking on my crutches with a group of friends. And suddenly like most of the group is eight (laughs) feet ahead, you know, because they have, they've found their own rhythm and their own conversation. And now I'm back with whoever decided to straggle behind. Especially when you're in a pack of wheelchairs. (laughs) (laughs) Well, then, and the nice thing about moving with other folks in wheelchairs is we're all kind of at the same height. Or like I was at uh, I was at a film festival with a friend of mine who's a little person, and we were at the same height. Yeah. We were able to have a conversation without me like you know straining my neck to look up. So yeah. lots of benefits there. Also, I used to do some work with a brand strategy company, and there was a an experience that I had that I've never forgotten, where I was doing some kind of research of an HR message board for various corporations. And someone on this HR message board said, why would I hire someone with a disability when I can hire someone without one? And that has stuck, that has stuck in my, that's like, you know, the, the, uh, the cat's out of the bag. That that, that is off. Yeah. Uh, I will have to disable that person, though. I will. <laughs> I <don't> need... <laughs> I, we're, we're building our criteria. Yeah, like exactly. Jamie will come after exactly. you. Exactly. I've, I've got a list. I've got a list. Well, in some, in some sense, you kind of like you live for those moments because it's like it's like you see the you know, you thought the frog was singing and dancing, but nobody else was seeing it. And now someone else like just flat out says the frog is singing and dancing. <laughs> Saying you know? the quiet so part like, okay, out loud. So at least, mm-hmm. Yeah. So, but I remembered that because, I mean, 
I didn't bother to write a response, but the response to that is you don't know that the person who has the disability doesn't have extraordinary skill in one of the areas that you actually need. The fact that I can't walk doesn't impede my ability to to write or collaborate or any of the things that we're discussing here today. Mm -hmm. All that it does is put me in positions where environments tend not to think about people like me. And that's a, that's a problem with the environment, yes. not a problem with me. Yes. <laughs> yeah. I think that's like, that's, that's the, I know that the term has been associated with so many negative things, but that is like the red pill moment for disability. When you realize, oh, I'm not the problem. The built world around me is the problem mm -hmm. that these things are built by human beings. And it, it would have been just as easy to make it an inclusive space as it is to 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 make it inaccessible. And I always think like, I also think disability is so contextual. So like to birds, all humans are very sad, inspirational little uh, disabled people because we can't fly, right? So like if you were hanging out with a bunch of bird friends and they're on the second floor and they're like, oh, sad, there's no stairs. Oh, sad, he can't fly, <laughs> you know? like, And I always think of that too, like when I'm at the skate park, right? So I'll be at the skate park for a couple hours, like dropping in and, you know, shredding, doing some cool stuff. And then, you know, then I go back to my car and I'm loading back into my car and like a little old man will come up and say, Missy, do you need some help? <laughs> and I always think like, oh man, I wish you'd seen me like two minutes ago. <laughs> you would never have asked me if I needed any help. And I even think about like, you know, with my friends or, or you know, um, Christina and, and Brie, like, okay, so if we're in a grocery store and I need something off a high shelf, then you're, you're able-bodied and I'm disabled, but come with me to the skate park and we'll figure out who's disabled. <laughs> also, both Christina and I are very short, so I don't think we're actually <laughs> yeah, going to be that right, 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 right. <laughs> well, we'll have to think of something else then. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> when we're talking about like sets and things like that, Again, that is built world stuff. And it is just as easy to not do it a crappy way. <laughs> it's 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 a little bit hard to take when a UPM says like, oh, sorry, we, we can't accommodate a wheelchair. Like, oh, you mean like in the replica New York City that you built in the <laughs> Iowa Prairie? You couldn't possibly have put in a ramp? Like, it's just, it's absurd on its face. It's just that yeah. you don't want to. And you don't see a need to. There's nothing, There's you're not getting any pressure from someone who might influence you to do it. And uh, gosh, that's part of what we do with the Disabled Writers Committee. It's part of what, you know, Ty does, uh, the think tank for uh, inclusion and equity, and just reminding people. And like the Inevitable Foundation has done some really great work in the space. They have an ad campaign right now that you may have seen. It's all over LA. It's, in, it's at the Grove at, you know, with this simple message that, there is no diversity, equity, and inclusion without disability. So yeah, just reminding people that we're here. They also have the cost of accommodations report, which, yeah. which speaks directly to this. Like to, to Jamie's point, it doesn't cost, first of all, first of all, it's ideal to get it right from the beginning so that you just build <laughs> equitable yes, spaces yeah. from the start because retrofitting, you know, is, you know, That's probably where most not of the as ideal from. as it actually yeah. Do, is. Yeah. And it's not as ideal as doing it right the first time, yeah. but this cost of accommodations report from the inevitable foundation is the first of its kind report to basically go through the line item of how much would it cost to have someone with this particular disability? And 
I, I don't I wish I had the the exact numbers in front of me, but the cost is very marginal. I, I wrote just, it down. I'll, just, I'll make sure that we have a link to that. Yeah. Yeah. It's just the perception. Yeah, sure. And the ironically, the perception is fed by the media we consume. So if you don't see us in newsrooms and on TV and in writers rooms and so on or characters on shows, then, of course, it feeds this perception as it did to me as a disabled kid growing up like, oh, well, maybe maybe having a career or a family or traveling or any of these things, like, what am I, where, <laughs> what, where am I supposed to go? What do I do? I guess I just sit in the dark and rock back and forth. Yeah, you can't be it if you can't see it, kind of the refrain yeah. that's yeah. brought up a lot in these conversations. Yeah. Well, and also, yeah. you know, I think, I think it's important to point out, like, one of the reasons why disabled people get left out of the diversity, equity, and inclusion conversation, which, David, you and I were in a conversation with a friend of ours who, who had this, like, brilliant mo, this brilliant thought where she said, you know, capitalism has a lot to do with this, that capitalism relies and is built on the oppression of black and brown bodies and LGBTQ, you know, like it's that, though, but that, that capitalism considers disabled people irrelevant. So, you know, why talk about us? Why, you know, we can't contribute, we can't right. produce, we can't be effective members of society. And so I believe that most of the time it is ignorance or an oversight or an accident, but but it bears mentioning that it is sometimes not an accident and it is sometimes not an oversight. And that has been one of the less pleasant parts about coming on to leadership in the Disabled Writers Committee is that I'm now privy to confidential stories from disabled writers of, I mean, really, I mean, horrific ableism, just right. outright naked ableism. Mm -hmm. There are there are many people in this industry, and it pains me to think about it. I don't like to think about it because, again, I like to assume people are well-intentioned and just ignorant. There are people in this industry who sincerely believe that disabled people are fine, but they have no business writing TV and film, that we can't do the job, and so we shouldn't, we, you know, that it's charity to give us the job, and that we'll just be a hindrance to production. We're just looking to get on the show so we can sue everyone. It's just, just like, <laughs> sure. just, a, you know, assumptions that are just wildly untrue. Yeah. And I think, like I said, that's been one of the least pleasant parts. And I think that's one of the reasons why disability doesn't get the attention, because people don't realize, they, they don't want to imagine that people like that exist. And they certainly do. And they are at work. They are, they're, they're making decisions, decisions in this industry. And sometimes when you're a disabled person and you don't get the job, it's because someone was out for you. Yeah, no. Um, so uh, I think that's a, a fantastic point to make. And a lot of that actually has to do with the fact that there is like uh, a huge stigma around having uh, a disability. And um, I speak for myself. Uh, I grew up with a, a lot of uh, inborn shame in the fact that I wasn't able to speak properly. And it was especially bad back then. I like to think of this just as well through the lens of being a gay man too. That I realized I was gay too from a very young age, but I was so ashamed of what that would mean for me. Like if I would ever be able to have a family, or how people I would think of me. Like if my family or friends would eventually I find something wrong with me. But I say this with a hundred percent. I say this with 100% just, uh, just a belief that uh, just, um, just, when I just, uh, just originally came out just, uh, just about 13 years ago, that it made my life much better across, just, um, across the board. 
And this has actually been a huge part of the LGBTQ movement is putting a human face to this because we are just like your friends and families and coworkers and basically just regular people who have our own thoughts and emotions and everything like that. So I realize that this is very much a personal choice, but I think that there is power for us actually speaking about our experiences. I think the more of us, like we step up and actually own it, it works very much in our favor because it's just, if people are really aware of just how many of us are out there, it's hard to keep a stigma going about that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think a lot of listeners will probably be surprised by the one in four stat. Yep. And yeah. I, I hopefully it, it, you know, causes everyone to be thinking about it. And this is bringing it back to why representation matters so much is so that you know that you're not alone, so that you know that you need to be more thoughtful, even if you're not disabled yourself, or the knowledge that you may become disabled and wanting to be aware of of how there are so many things in your life that you shouldn't be taking for granted. And it is important to be told stories by people from that community in order to do it thoughtfully and complexly rather than constantly being a tear-jerking Oscar bait for an able-bodied person. Like, it's not a prop. Disability is not a prop. Disability is not a technical skill. It's not a costume. talking about earlier. It's not a costume. Yeah. Right. Well, and that's too, like, also, so yes, representation matters. It matters for little baby David. <laughs> I've seen pictures of David as a child and he's a little cutie pie. So I'm like, a little baby David. So, you know, I'm watching it and like, hey, I could be this or that. It's also to reduce harm. So there are some really terrible memes out there regarding disability. Like one I can think of off the top of my head that's incredibly damaging is the one of the suicidal quadriplegic, right? So in TV's film and in TV, excuse me, in TV, film, books, it's like a given. The first thing the character thinks about when they become disabled is, I guess I better die. But that's actually not that common among disabled people. There may be these moments, you know, with a, particularly with an acquired disability going from, you know, becoming regular or the, you know, neutral default human to being something other than that. But that that's not the overwhelming sentiment and that most quadriplegics don't kill themselves. They actually realize that they can have like a rich, wonderful life with family and people who love them. And they can actually do a lot of the same things that used to bring them joy in a different way. And we don't see that enough. Right. So that's probably like that's probably part of why a a person who wakes up in the hospital and and is told that they have quadriplegia, their first thought might be like, oh, I better die. It's because they've seen it on TV and in movies and in books. They've not seen the opposite story being told, um, which is actually, you know, what it is really more like to live with a disability long term is, you know, that I I don't constantly think about the fact that I can't walk, um, that my life is rich and full. And I, at times I feel like I'm an evangelist for that. You know, people will come up to me and say, oh, I just feel so bad for you. And (laughs) sometimes I get a little manic. I'm like, I'm like, no, my life is great. No, it's really great. I promise. I promise. Like, I'm fine. Don't, I don't want, nope. I don't want you to pray over me. (laughs) Nope. No, thank you. Um, My life is probably better than yours. (laughs) (laughs) You know, just like, just because you see a wheelchair doesn't mean that like, oh, automatically, you know, I'm, they're better off than me or, you know, and that, that's the experience of the disabled people I know, the human beings that I know who are in my community that, 
we're having a great time. <laughs> Except for these barriers that we run into in the built world and in people's attitudes. Those those are our problems. The fact that my legs don't work is not my actual issue. My actual issue is the assumptions that the world around me puts on me because of that. And the fact that nobody builds fucking ramps. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Or in a, a lot of places, I mean, ableism can be so structural that if you think about where you live, and I don't know, I don't know whether you folks are in apartments or what, but like pretty much every apartment or house has steps in front yeah. of it. Mm -hmm. So, but you don't think about the fact that most houses have two steps in front of it for no real reason other than, you know, <laughs> this is just the way we've always built houses. Yep. So that And that's how deeply baked a lot of this stuff is, is that people don't think about that till it's pointed out. And Jamie's point about how often people come and ask about, in, in her case and mine, our legs. Uh, it's it's way more often than people think. Yeah. And, and it used to, it used to really upset me and make me self conscious. And now that I've like more fully embraced the you know the opportunities behind storytelling or or connecting with other people, like now it's just stuff that I share on my Facebook just for so people can see. Like you'll never never believe. The weird conversation I just had <laughs> yes, with somebody yes. passing. I love David's tales from public transit in LA. <laughs> <laughs> but but it used to be that I just would like hold that stuff inside myself and feel frustrated for the day that you know some random stranger asked about my penis on the subway. <laughs> but, <laughs> wow! <laughs> I was. I, I, I mean. <laughs> <laughs> but so but now it's more something like you know that you share on you know, share with others so that they don't feel so isolated to this. Yeah. Point. And, you know, like, so a very, very informal thing that David and a couple of other disabled TV writer friends and I and, and Shay soon, because he's assured me he's a uh, he's very good at trivia <laughs> is that we play trivia together. I am a whiz. <laughs> <laughs> we play we play trivia together. So just very casual. It's not like a big organized thing for the committee. It's just like as friends, we've gotten together. And those are the most healing times and we can sit and bitch and commiserate. And I always leave feeling, you know, so much lighter than I did before, even if my circumstance didn't change, just getting to share it with people in my community who understand it. And again, like going back to that, like if there's one thing I could wish for most disabled people in the world is that they would look around and realize they're part of a family, they're part of a community. And um, that that is actually a huge strength for us. Yeah. I also just wanted to make like, a point when we're talking about accessibility and stuff. So, um, and, and Shay, you can share whatever you want um, here, but you know, someone, when we're talking about a writer's room, so like Shay can charge up five flights of stairs, but in a writer's room and he, and, and I don't, I don't want to share anything that you're not interested in sharing Shay, but like that, that has been, yeah, that, that, that someone might say, oh, I'd rather like, oh, I can have a person in the room in a wheelchair, but not a person with a stutter, right. which again, that those contextual things. And also like, it's the tiny, like I'm friends with Shay. It, it's worth, it's worth the wait. It's worth the wait. Like he's, you know, like you can wait five seconds right. and, you know, and hear like the inner workings of his cool mind and that he brings that to the table in a writer's room. But there's no reason why we have to, why we can't why we can't take, you know, five minutes and be patient. And neither of those yeah. things have to do with writing skills. Exactly. Absolutely not. Or exactly. Oh, and that, things as fast as other people. I'm going to be a fantastic and, yeah, writer. So, hey. 
<laughs> well, and so, and that's like the other t- thing. So we talked about like, you know, deaf writers and, and it's on an individual basis, whether or not a deaf person considers themselves disabled. So I never put that label on anyone because some deaf people are very clear and that they are, they're not disabled, they're deaf. But talking with some of our, um, our uh, members who are deaf, they have an unbelievably tall hill to climb to get into a writer's into a writer's room just for want of an interpreter, and that's it. But because they have this barrier to communication, even though, like I said, they don't have any issues on set, they can you know charge up and downstairs. They don't need any of that, but they just need an interpreter. And for the money that uh, <laughs> production spends on lunch, like you could you could you could you can fork over like. I'm not calling out. The snack budget alone. Exactly. Like (laughs) network XYZ, you can afford to hire an interpreter for the room. But they're, you know, they don't see the value in it. There's like, that feels like charity to them. And they're like, if they'll do it, if they, if they feel like it, if they have a chance, but it's not an imperative to them. It's not, they don't understand like all the, all the treasure they're leaving behind by not tapping into those, the resources of disabled writers. Yeah. I think that's really important. So uh, zooming back out to representation matters on like a consumer point of view, this is always like a rough question to ask, but sometimes lovely question to ask is, have you ever seen yourself represented? If so, do you remember the first time you ever like saw yourself on TV or film or have you yet? Because that, unfortunately, (laughs) for a lot of us, myself included, happens where you haven't yet. Well, yes. there's tons of there's tons of gay Persian stutterers on TV. Not yet, there are. No, <laughs> exactly. And of course, like you know, there are we are we contain multitudes. But when did the when was the first time you felt you you saw yourself or something in yourself represented in a way right. that you were like, oh my gosh, hashtag mood. All right, so uh, <laughs> I think this is going to be a, a very gay answer, but uh, just, I am a huge fan of Romy Michelle's uh, High School Reunion, right? Yeah. Uh, okay. At the very <laughs> end of the movie, and uh, just a really sexy cameo from Justin Thoreau. Uh, just, uh, just basically comes up, and, just, uh, just, and he was a character who had a weird like, back and forth thing with uh, just, uh, just Janine Garofalo, just, like, where he essentially stalked her back in high school, but he would never speak to her. And then, uh, <laughs> at the very end of the movie, uh, just, like he says, "Oh, um, it's, it's because I had a very bad stutter." So one, oh. I, just, I finally saw somebody else who actually said it's just like the word stutter out loud. But yeah. then it's, at the same time, it's filled me with like a, a false level of hope and that he was yeah. like, oh, mm-hmm. it's just, it's just like now that it's just, I'm a grown up man, it's just, it's just like he's back at a high school reunion. I finally beat that stutter. And it's like, yeah. like yep. it's great hearing Now I can get scene. the girl. Now I can get the girl. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. It's, yeah. I'm also thinking of like Bridgerton, the first season of Bridgerton. That's a major plot point is that the, the male lead had a stutter as a child, but overcame it. Yeah. Oh, Powered God. Through. Overcoming yeah. so, it. Well, yeah. it, 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 it's, it's like a fun fact about stuttering. Uh, it, uh, it really is like it's just a small uh, it's just, uh, uh, minority of people who actually keep stuttering uh, as they grow up. So it's just, I think I'm one of the it's just, uh, it's just a smaller number of uh, uh, special people out there, I guess. But I mean, <laughs> it's made me who I am. So uh, it's just, uh, yeah. it's just, uh, just, like I don't think that it's just, uh, uh, it's just, I have to have hope that I'll finally stop stuttering someday because it's, just, yeah. it's exactly it's just like how Jamie said. Uh, I have a, it's just, it's just, I have a, it's just, it's just a really kick-ass life as it is. So yeah, I, I will say you know mostly as far as representation go. I mean, some of my heroes are you know Madison Cawthorn, <laughs> Greg Abbott. <laughs> <On the top. laughs> 
They're not going to think you're being sarcastic. Wait, no, Jamie, gotta, I think you mistook we, the people that you're going to disable after the right, conversation. Right. No, yeah, 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 We're no, on no, a no. different part of the conversation. <laughs> no, I mean, the, the fact of the matter is I have not seen myself represented, but mm-hmm. I'm also like, wah, wah, poor little white lady. Like, I got represented for, you know, the first several decades of my life. But I think for me, what I really don't see, what I really, really don't see is um, disabled parents being portrayed on television and in film where it's not about like their injury or whatever. It's just like a mom uh, who has a kid because people are just always so shocked (laughs) when they see me out with my kids and, and they're always like, Oh, you know, they're so wonder, (laughs) they're so wonderful to help you. And I'm like, I'm like holding one of my like daughter's (laughs) things. My son is like crying and I'm like, they're not, (laughs) they're not helping me. I'm helping them. (laughs) Um, (laughs) They are an impediment to me. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but um but you I don't see that and I see you know like even like you know playgrounds that are uh, you know that are accessible they're built for disabled kids not for disabled parents mm. to bring their non-disabled children to I also think you know like as I get long in the tooth <laughs> I I don't see women who I don't see disabled women who are athletic who are doing extreme sports who are I don't see any of that right like I don't see people who are proud of their disability, proud of their, you know, their standing in the disability community, proud to be a part of this family. I don't see people embracing that. And so, you know, the two shows that I sold last year, at least one of them was intensely about that, you know, that it's it's about a group of disabled friends who, you know, are in their late 20s and they're just like making life happen. And so, and I wrote that because I'd never seen it. Those are both such great answers. <laughs> That I'm You're gonna really shit the bed on this one, David. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> David, beat that. It's tricky. So, 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 so at at, ri- at risk of dating myself, like I, I grew up watching a lot of The Wonder Years mm. and Quantum Leap yes. and Columbo. <laughs> these were not shows where, and admittedly, Columbo was an older show. I was a weird little <laughs> kid, but anyway, these were not shows where disability was part of the even conversations that characters were having, right? So, but I mean, I do remember. I I did feel very like a kinship with Kevin Arnold, except I was much more of a Paul <laughs> than a Kevin for those that watched the show. But um, was Paul? <laughs> yeah, I, I remember. I'm way too young for this conversation, David. I'm so sorry. <laughs> I, that's right. I They're rebooting it. So maybe. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I'll, I'll understand. Um, and then I'll call you back. Is it comfortable but, to podcast in I your swaddle remember. like that? Or do you want your arms free? <laughs> really not. So it, t- it took a long, it took a long time. I, I remember feeling like, you know, there were Kevin Arnold elements of life that I experienced and understood, but he still wasn't like touching on the areas of life that, that I was uniquely experiencing as a disabled person. And to be totally frank, like I didn't know how to contextualize disability in my own life. I remember being on a baseball team with a bunch of kids with different disabilities and thinking, well, I'm not as disabled as this other kid. <laughs> so you're always like framing yeah, against like, sure. as if to be disabled is to be something of, is something to be avoided. Mm-hmm. So it was a long time. And then when Breaking Bad came around people, and I was already yeah. a big Vince Gilligan fan from the X-Files, which was another very formative show for me. People were like, did you check out this Breaking Bad show? And they were coming to me, not because of Vince Gilligan, but because there was a kid yeah. with cerebral palsy on it, <laughs> who, who really doesn't like- RJ Mitty. He's, he's not, yeah. he's and And he's not driving the- the story, but just to have him there was something that people were bringing up. And I remember being at a sandwich place, standing on my crutches and people ask me questions all the time and like, or just stare and ask, you know, and, and wonder. And this teenager came over 
and said, uh, what happened to your legs, man? And I told them, and I used to have like this little brief TV guide response explaining what cerebral palsy was in case anybody cared. <laughs> and, uh, and I said, but instead I said, do you watch Breaking Bad? And he said, yeah. And I said, I have what Walt <gasps> Jr. has. And he said, oh, Whoa. cool. And he walked away. <laughs> and I was like, that was the easiest conversation I've ever had about oh my, my disability. And it was because it was because there was a direct thing to point to, to say, you know, it's not exactly this, but this, and then that's all they needed to hear. And then it, it demystified the whole experience. So I will start saying, you know, Madison Cawthorn. So here's something funny too, that is, I think just, they just popped into my head. Uh, it's just, I think it's a funny story. This is like for both me and David as well about us, uh, how Jimmy Vollmer on South Park, uh, not only walks with his, uh, a such with a such of crutches, but he also has a stutter and he's still a very <laughs> solid stand-up comic. And I always found that extremely inspiring. It's like the fact that he got up on stage and just would shoot his shot. <laughs> that I hadn't, I hadn't thought of that. And, but it opens up that a conversation I've had quite a bit, which is animation is much more open to us than live action is. I think mm -hmm. both on screen and in writer's rooms, because it, you know, there's not all these production things that people have built up in their head about what production is going to look like, but also, you know, sadly in animation, you can kind of toggle between whether someone is disabled or not. Cause I know like on family guy, they had a joke where Joe who's in the wheelchair gets hit. Uh, and he's like suddenly unparalyzed <laughs> for a second. And then he's like reparalyzed again <laughs> in live action. But, but sometimes the, sometimes the coolest representation actually comes through animation, sadly, because so many folks in production are so uninformed about what disabled people can do and be. So, but that's also a benefit though, too. A lot of kids programming, I think is really great with disability related things. Cause in those spaces, hopefully if you're lucky, you're in a space where people are really explicitly and intentionally conscious of like, what is the message that we're sending with this material? How is this going to affect a kid watching this at home or their parents or, or the conversations they have? And, and those aren't always conversations that happen in writer's rooms for, you know, legal police dramas or that sort of thing, yeah. adult TV. That's so funny that you bring that up, David, because as I'm thinking about it, half of all major asexual representation on TV is animated. And I, <laughs> yeah. Oh, wow. yeah, there's there's seven, six or seven, like from the last decade. I'm asexual, <laughs> so I know these numbers. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, half of them are half of them are animated and most of them are Todd from Bojack Horseman. And that's that's it. <laughs> yep. That was the that was the that was the first one I thought of when you yeah. said mm -hmm. that. It's the first one uh, most yeah. people think of. And if you make YouTube yeah. videos about asexuality and look at your YouTube analytics, I would guarantee you, I would bet money on the fact that one of the search terms that got to your video was Todd from Bojack Horseman. <laughs> it's a very strange thing, really but also kind of a bummer that that's the only one. <laughs> but anyways, that's exactly. fun rabbit hole to go down. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, for sure. Uh, so there were some things that you all mentioned in your introductions that I just wanted to touch on just about the the three of your careers. But before we wrap up the sort of like big conversation that we're having, I wanted to make sure if the three of you had any sort of initial final thoughts before we we wrap this up just talking about you three cool cool kids uh to bring up so uh yeah i think a final thought that that i have is that i originally got my start out here uh at the very end of 08 where i was able to land as an unpaid internship at a mini major studio and uh it's just 
I spent just, uh, just about six and a half years there. It was a really great experience. Uh, just, just, I wound up uh, just moving from uh, just a story analyst to just the head of our story department. And uh, just, I worked with uh, a team of really great people. But uh, it's just, and now that I have been here for going on uh, about 14 years now, God, I'm old, mm-hmm. but um, it's just, <laughs> I really have seen as a seismic shift in how these these industries is operating. So uh, just, hmm. uh, just, just, I would highly encourage anyone out there to, a- to absolutely uh, like lean hard into what makes you different. Uh, it's just, you don't necessarily have to have a full intersectional identity, but uh, I say be proud of who you are because uh, there's absolutely uh, a market out there and a hunger and it's, I think that we are, are definitely operating under an age of specificity. So just, uh, mm, just mm-hmm. yeah, just absolutely. Be proud of who you are because uh, I think the shit's finally selling. So <laughs> I probably could have said that better, but still. I think it was perfect. Yeah. You had mentioned something at the top of this, Brie, like literally in the introductions, something about the theme of the show around sort of working outside of the power structure of Hollywood, mm-hmm. right? Sure, yeah. That might be part of your, Making your opener. Making great work that gets seen without playing the Hollywood, playing the Hollywood game, game, or at least yeah. while changing the rules. <laughs> and I think I think that is really key for a lot of disabled artists, is finding ways to, you know, uh, Zach Anner got hired as the first disabled writer on Speechless because they had a whole season before they brought in a disabled writer. Mm-hmm. And part of what you hear in those circumstances is, you know, well, we couldn't, we couldn't find somebody, right? Well, they found him because he had a YouTube channel that was gaining popularity. And then later he put a book out and all that sort of thing. So, and I think that those sorts of avenues are going to be, you know, going to continue to be very important for disabled artists because there is still a lot of work to do within the like traditional industry structure to make it a little bit more open. We're trying to do a lot of that work within our committee, but as in all th- things with in Hollywood, it's slow. I would just encourage as many people as possible to really explore your different skill sets and, and network as much as you can, but don't let it feel like networking, like actually yeah. try to build real friendships and relationships mm-hmm. without thinking about what you're going to get from it. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, to Shay's point, just be as authentically you as you can and then maybe not rely necessarily on a specific network or something to open a door for you. Yeah. You might have to like play the you field. might have to crowbar it open <laughs> from some other. Absolutely. A crutch is good for that, right? You can. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I applied to the Disney writing program a couple times before I had gotten in. And, you know, even after like solving that initial hurdle, there's our, there's immediately like seven other hurdles that you hadn't thought of yeah. before. So I would also encourage people not to put all their eggs in one basket of thinking like, once I get staffed on a show, everything's going to be great. It's always just, a struggle. You know, keep trying to work on something new. Yeah. We're all, all of us are just like re-breaking in all the time. Yeah. So. For every person out there who might be actively hostile to disabled people, you know, because there's a whole swath of people in the middle who are sort of like neutral, haven't taken a side, right? But then there are this, there's a small cohort of people who are actively hostile to us. There is also like a cohort on the other end of the spectrum where I have found mentors who are champions for me and who take special care of me because um, they know that I am in a historically marginalized group. And so they are willing to fight for me at every level. And I, I know that I can, you know, text them or email them or call them whenever I need and they will call whomever they'll put, you know, put in a good word for me wherever. So that is the positive side of it. And then, you know, the first 
script I sold was um, I had I had sat down to write an unsellable script. <laughs> I I joked I was like I'm gonna write myself an unsellable pilot because I'm gonna have four disabled leads and you know they're just gonna be doing disabled people stuff and I just wanted to I just wanted a strong drama sample and I just I hadn't seen that. And so when I presented it to my producers as my lol unsellable script, they were like, we don't think it's unsellable. <laughs> and that's and that's the one that sold. So always, always, always writing from your heart and writing what you want to see. And particularly if you are a member of a historically marginalized group, leaning into that, even though it is scary. And I can't none of us here can promise you that someone won't take your disclosure and use it against you. I mean, it happens. But you can't find those allies and those champions as well on the other end of the spectrum until you do that. I think that's wonderful. And in the in, in the spirit of allyship, this is a great time to mention that recently Gloria Calderon Kellett tweeted something about working, having an amazing time working with a disabled uh, person that she had hired and in the process of working with that person, realizing how many areas of marginalization exist for disabled people that she had, yeah. that Gloria hadn't fully considered before. And it was this most amazing Twitter thread that she put up. And, and those are the kind of folks that we need more of, I think, across all intersections. Like, I and I say this with awareness that, you know, I have privileges myself as a straight white man. And those are areas where I have to check myself to think about, you know, what am I missing in this conversation? Who's missing in this space? And so to see that also include ableism from a non-disabled yeah. person who is herself marginalized in other ways and to see her articulate that and and support us is really all that we Wait, just because you just mean you made me think about it our girl lizzo oh, please our, okay. our girl lizzo yeah so she <laughs> recently put out a song that had a an ableist slur in it and there was a lot of hubbub on twitter and a lot of lizzo fans were shouting down disabled people and being like shut up leave her alone it's not important and there was sort of silence from Lizzo's camp for just a minute. And so, but I also, all the criticism I saw against her from disabled people was very respectful and and very much like, we love you. Can you change this? And then she, sure enough, she put out a statement saying, I understand the power of words. You know, she said from her perspective as a, and she, these are her words. She said, as a fat black woman, I understand how words can be turned into weapons and used against you. And that is never my desire. So I've re-released the song without the slur in it. And I, I just about died. I mean, it's just amazing when you see things like that. And yeah, I, I, I also do feel like a lot of times black women have our back in a way that a lot of other people don't. And I think, you know, there's a kinship. I mean, I, I think they're aware of oppression in a way that a lot of people aren't. And, and yeah, and I am a white woman. So you know, I'm right in the same boat with David, like, you know, white ladies are, we're taking our lumps now and, you know, it's deserved. So always wanting to check my privilege in that way. But yeah, it's just so amazing when someone just gives a masterclass in how to be an ally. And it's something that I am learning towards other groups as well. Um, I don't yeah. have everything figured out and I make mistakes in my allyship with other groups. So it's just really cool when someone puts on a masterclass like that and how to do it right. I will say in the words of these inimitables, I will, <laughs> I'll close with, it's about that time. <laughs> <laughs> I love Kind of better, but it was right there. It was right there. <laughs>
<laughs> Once again, absolutely worth the wait. The timing yes, actually absolutely. was perfect. <laughs> that was actually really perfect. Yeah. Okay. So I wanted to close this out just by talking about the three of you as writers, because all of you have obviously storied careers in a variety of different ways and specifically things that you mentioned in the intro. I wanted to just really quickly dig into, give you a second to shout yourself out and teach people a little bit about your industry and your craft. So first, a uh, question for Jamie. So you mentioned- I went first currently- last time. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm so sorry. I can't apologize enough. We'll no, no, I'm just, I just, David and Shay are, are far more accomplished than I am. So. Oh, no, no, no. <laughs> this is not a competition. You are all equally- Untouchable to me. Selling two pi- selling two pilots in a year is that's a, a huge accomplishment. accomplishment. Harry, come on, thank you guys. What? Oh. Yeah. And, then, and then, so that's yeah. actually what I wanted to, to hear about, Jamie. So you you, you use the phrase I, "I just wrapped up development." And yeah. for folks who maybe are a little bit further outside of industry jargon, what does that mean? Like, what does it mean to be done with development? Done might be not the right word. <laughs> yeah, like, it's like nothing ever is, really in dies. In practical terms, yeah. exactly. Like in practical terms, yeah. what does that mean to you at this moment in time to be wrapped up in development? Sure. So a studio might hear a thousand pitches a year. They and these numbers are not in they're not correct. It's just sort of an idea, right? So the, a pitch. Sure. So you go, you know, you develop a pitch, which is, you know, 20 to 30 minute presentation. Uh, generally, it's memorized in the age of Zoom, we get to have teleprompters on our screen. So that is amazing. You know, you say, here's the show that I want to make, it's gonna have, you know, here are the characters, here are the themes we'll be exploring. This is the world. These are their arcs for the first season. These are sample episodes of the first season. This is for, you know, and where we're going to go after the first season. And if they like it, they might buy it. And in that, in that, in that, in that amazing, wonderful circumstance, they pay you a lot of money and say, go write the pilot. So maybe they hear a thousand, a thousand pitches a year, maybe they buy a hundred. That means they've got 100 writers or or writing teams out there writing 100 separate pilots. Then once all those pilots come in, and and it's also like an endlessly iterative process with lots and lots of notes from lots of different stakeholders. So, you know, strap in for that if you want to be a writer. (laughs) You're constantly being told you didn't do it good enough. (laughs) Um, but But it is a collaborative process, and I... I've been lucky to feel like all my projects ended up in a better place after after all the notes than they did before, even though the process itself is painful. But then after they get those hundred scripts, they might say, great, we're going to produce 10 of them. So we're going to actually put them up on their feet. We're going to we're going to shoot them. And then when they get those 10 pilots that were made, maybe maybe they choose one, two, three, four to go to series. So you're going from a thousand to four. So the odds are forever not in your favor. And so you go into it knowing that, but basically you'll be in conversation with your producers, with the studio, with the network, constantly, you know, getting re- getting notes, revising. So for me, what I mean when I say I'm sort of wrapping up development is that I've wrapped up the writing portion of these two things. And yeah, so now it's so now it's it's filtering through different processes at, at these two separate places. You know, we'll see. But but the nice it, it's hard because um when I'm out in the world and someone asks what I do, I say I'm a TV writer and they go, oh, what show are you writing on? But sure, yeah. most TV writers are not writing on a show right now. I mean, just in terms of numbers, there's like 2000 jobs <laughs> on TV shows and like 200,000 writers who want them. So, um, you know, people are always like, oh, wait, yeah, they go, oh, development. What's development? What, are that, what does that mean? You sold a show. When, when do I get to see it? And it's like, well, <laughs> there's a lot more to it than that. But yeah, like but eight it, asterisks after uh-huh, I'm a TV writer. Exactly. And a little cross, those little cross. Yeah. <laughs> they run out of asterisks. A footnote. Um, 
Yeah, but it's, you know, but but internally, I mean, when I talk to writers, they understand what a big deal it is and that, yeah, I put my career on a different level and I'm, I'm trying to get staffed. That is my goal. But if not, then so development season now they'll tell you it's year round, but it's but it has traditionally been sort of late summer into the fall is when studios are buying the projects and then they want them written by January so that they can go into pilot season in February and so that they can go to upfronts in May, which is when they they announce all the shows that they have bought or that they are putting on the air. So that is a staffing season in March, right? <laughs> yes, exactly right. And yeah, I forgot staffing season. <laughs> there you go. Yeah, it's it's in there somewhere. But yeah, so that's where I'm at right now. And so it's a little bit hard because I've I've spent so long on these two projects that now it's like, great, what else do you have? <laughs> sure. <laughs> so yeah, I'm actually like, I was I was out at Trivia the other night. David couldn't make it. Shay couldn't make it. They were both invited. And talking with my disabled TV writer friends and, and just commiserating over that. Like that moment, writers are just such neurotic creatures. And so that moment when you don't have an idea and um, you think, well, that means I'm a loser. I don't have stories. I'll never, I'll never write again. And then that sure, usually comes yeah. right before you come up with your next great idea. So I'm, I'm about <laughs> to come up with my next great idea. <laughs> <laughs> That's I, I hope that for all of us. Thank you. Um, okay, cool. So for Shay, the question I had for you is you were talking about your, your adaptation, you're working on an adaptation right now of a novel. You don't have to give details if you aren't able to. Yeah, I can't but I'm curious because we recently, yeah, exactly. I figured, but I, we recently had a conversation in our craft mini series about adaptations. And so I'm curious for you, especially given this is your first time, like what are things that are striking to you about the, like what, what is your process for that? Especially given it's your first time. Yeah. What's, what's the adaptation thing like? All right. So, um, yeah, uh, first I think it's just, uh, it's just a fantastic question. Uh, I think it might help if I'm able to add a little bit of context around that. So uh, I think I mentioned uh, uh, that I spent uh, about six and a half years where I worked in a, and I ran a studio story department. And, and for people who aren't aware, a story department uh, um, is the script hub of a studio or a production company where uh, where all the incoming scripts that are sent from like it's just from a series of managers or agents or or um, executive producers around town. Uh, it's basically up to us to like, read uh, and write up uh, a coverage report for all of the executives who uh, honestly uh, um, aren't able to read it's just, uh, all the scripts that are sent to them. So uh, just, I had always wanted to be uh, a working screenwriter myself, but just, I had never read a script and I had never even just attempted uh, just, to write a script just until I moved out here. So um, uh, I very much credit that whole uh, uh, that whole uh, experience uh, with um, with helping me uh, understand uh, uh, what makes a good script, uh, and perhaps most importantly, uh, what makes a bad script. So uh, I figured out how to write, and then uh, uh, um, I'm very much more of a feature person. Uh, but I think Jamie basically already explained uh, how rigorous the uh, the uh, just, uh, just, uh, just a development process is. It's, uh, just, I would say it's even a bit worse uh, in features because it moves much, much slower. So it's super crazy times. But uh, I used uh, all that knowledge just, like, to find it was just, um, it's just my own just original voice. So I have sold scripts on pitch. Uh, I've sold scripts on spec. Uh, 
I saw like the writing on the wall uh, at every guild meeting that uh, I'd like I shot up for because it honestly seemed like I was outnumbered by just a bunch of TV writers like in like a one to nine out of ten. So uh, just, I figured, uh, uh, oh, I should, I should yeah. definitely start writing pilots. Uh, just, I was able to get just a couple of those sold, and uh, I most recently staffed on a half-hour series at HBO Max this past fall. Now, it's just, uh, it's just, I think I can finally get back just, like, to the original question. I'm so sorry for that huge encyclopedia that I just dumped no, on everybody. it's all interesting. But yeah, so um, it's just, uh, it's just, I think at least uh, in my own experience, uh, it made it's just, uh, it's just, uh, it's just the whole script writing process uh, um, a bit easier, but also just a bit harder as well. I think with a feature adaptation, a huge part of the problem is basically it's basically already solved for you because I wouldn't necessarily have to break out a whole story. A lot of the beats are already in sure. place. I already know who like all of the main characters are. So it absolutely cuts down on like just a brainstorming session. I felt super happy that uh, I wouldn't have to do everything from like a very slow, a ground up approach. But I think just a flip side to that is that uh, you still want to stay uh, as accurate as you can to the original book itself, especially if it's a popular novel or a popular series of IP because there is a history um, a loyal fan base involved. So it's basically sure. walking a tightrope where I have to give it as much of my voice as possible, but I have to stay in a, just a certain zone that uh, actually stays true to the original work. It's just, um, it's just, and it becomes doubly harder if the original writer's voice is a lot different than yours. Uh, here in this case, because uh, I'm also uh, an action and uh, uh, like a high stakes uh, th th thriller writer. If that was the same uh, space that the book already exists in, so I didn't feel I was far. I didn't feel as if I was far out of my um, original element. I felt very at home, but it still involves like uh, it's a super concise balancing act in order to make everybody happy um, especially myself because this is like my work I'm putting out there too yeah no that's really interesting and I I would love to talk more about that but we we for for the purposes of this one podcast I, we're gonna leave it there everybody yeah, but absolutely hey, I said too much anyway Shay. No, you didn't. no 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 it's <laughs> something we like about this podcast is showcasing how many different paths to success there yep. are and how yep. many different ways people break in we're trying yep. to break out of what it means uh, mm -hmm. but anyways enough about us David, <laughs> about you so obviously you've, you've brought this up a couple of times about being a part of the disney writers program and we have had a number of people on our podcast from a variety of different like of the fellowship programs who have won different contests and so i'm curious for you especially since you mentioned that it took you a couple of times to get in what can you share about that experience in terms of like what you learned was more or less successful and how did it like specifically help or not you uh, along the path of your career oh it definitely helps in terms of what i learned the first time i applied for it was at the advice of a teacher that i had because i think he knew that especially back then uh breaking into television as a disabled person you're you just weren't likely to get assistant jobs back then this was before people were talking about disability much at all in fact when i finished film school I sent a message to folks at different networks saying like, 
who's my, where's my Shonda Rhimes that I can like chart a path behind, you know, who's the, this was pre Ryan O'Connell and, and everything sure. else. So, um, so, but I applied out of school and I got to the finals and that was an illuminating experience. It, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a challenging gauntlet of activities. It was, everything was very, very new to me. I hadn't had a pitch meeting before. I hadn't, I didn't know about studio work before. I mean, I'd gone to film school, but that's a very academic way of looking at things. Yeah. And so I got to the finals and I thought, oh man, this is going to be so cool. I finished film school and then maybe I'll be working on a TV show next year. And then I didn't get it. So then I had to read and I ended up rerouting and like working for magazines for a bit and did a lot of journalism stuff, et cetera, et cetera. Later on, the Disney program took in a writer in a wheelchair whose name's David Renault. He's on The Good Doctor. He is both a medical doctor in real life and a disabled television writer who is from Vancouver. So there's like, he, he, he probably adds so much value to like what they're doing over there and a great guy. Achiever much? And, and he said, he said, uh, you should take another run at the Disney program because it worked out pretty well for me. And so the fact that, and again, this goes back to like, you know, we all, we all want somebody to follow behind or learn more about the business through who's going to see the business specifically through the eyes of a wheelchair user. And I thought, well, maybe I'll take another run at it. So then I applied again. I got to, uh, that, that was, I think that was the year I got to like the semifinals and I applied a third time. And then by the third time, that was when I got in, I think was the third, was the third go. It's not a program designed to like teach you how to write. Cause they assume that you already are there. We all read each other's scripts. It's more a program built around like, what is your personal trajectory that you can then uh, quickly and effectively convey to a room when you go into meetings. And so there's a lot of work around that. And it's a very diverse group. It's an interesting, it's an interesting space to be in though, because even in those spaces where diversity and inclusion are so central, I was the only disabled person there. So there were certain venues that we would go visit where the fact of having me there in that space made other people in the group aware of like, <laughs> oh, this isn't really... <laughs> This, this, this must be a little bit more challenging for you. And so that is sort of a microcosm of what you will then experience as a disabled person on a television set is a lot of those kind of moments of like, okay, everybody else is doing it this way. Let me see how I can figure out doing it this way without, you know, without quote unquote being a problem, right? A lot of the things that a lot of underrepresented groups have to navigate. So, but yeah, it was a valuable program for me helped me um, connect with various shows within the ABC freeform Disney channel family. And then I got staffed on the rookie because of that. And, um, and through the rookie learned a lot about that. I mean, there, a, there were very few wheelchair users writing television, writing on television shows and B a network show that does 20 episodes and has such a big launch. Like the rookie did. It was such a big, it was a big thing for ABC even then. So yeah, it really taught me quite a bit about how things really work once you get behind the scenes. And so I'm, I'm incredibly grateful for that. And now I'm in a position where when other disabled people reach out to me to ask me about like, what's it like in these programs or what's it like on these shows, I can have a pretty informed answer, but also respecting that I'm not, you know, an upper level writer. So the showrunner is going to give you a different, different <laughs> level of insight than a, than a staff writer would. Also, I think just because we're talking about fellowships and all that stuff. Um, I think it, I, I need to say <laughs> most fellowships do not consider disability to be a, a metric of diversity. So we are not considered, um, eligible for many fellowships, um, or, and, wow. you know, 
Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I don't know of any that outright ban us from applying, but we are not given yeah. any sort of extra, you know, we're not. So like someone like me, like they would say, oh, you're a woman. You know, not that I'm a woman in a wheelchair. I'm just, oh, you know, a white woman. And that is really frustrating because um, it, it, at times it feels like the industry is actually set up to keep us out. So the three ways that, you know, that I hear most commonly of people breaking in are either through a fellowship, which, as I've already mentioned, most are not for us. Or, you know, you have situations like and I and I understand that these that the diversity hire programs can be a dumpster fire. And there's a lot of conversation to be had about uh, the utility of those. And, and but but the fact of the matter is disabled people are not eligible for those. So another 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 way in that other marginalized communities have that we don't that are shut off to us. And then the most common way I think that that writers get staffed is that they um, and of course, I'm talking from the TV writer perspective, and and it's important always to have Shay's feature writer perspective. That's another thing that he brings to the table in, in leadership and in our committee. But coming up the assistant route, sure. I have actually worked as a PA. And I think I'm probably I was probably the only PA in a wheelchair in Los Angeles, just judging from people's reactions <laughs> to me. <laughs> Whoa, they would say. <laughs> and, um, and I could do the job. And like I said, drawing from these deep reserves of um, flexibility and resourcefulness that I have developed since becoming disabled. You know, people look at me, but people, you know, people won't even, they won't ask, okay, what, how are you going to get lunch for everyone? They'll just assume I can't and I won't even get the interview. And I've had also, and, and then, so even all those things happen, right? So you, maybe you get, you have the interview, you do the zoom interview and then, and then, you know, maybe they want you to come in and then you realize that the writer's room is on the fourth floor of a building with no elevator there. So there are just, sometimes it feels like it's an insurmountable obstacle. Like not only do we face all of the same um, issues as other historically marginalized groups, but there's also all the things that are built to help historically marginalized groups. Don't, we don't count for them. So, um, All that being said, you're sitting here talking to three disabled writers who are in the WGA and that in itself is a huge accomplishment. And and so it it absolutely can be done. But just like in other areas of life, usually disabled people have to find our own little quirky niche way in. Yeah, because I think uh, basically that exact same experience also happened to me. It was like back when I was getting started because like I moved out here. uh, I didn't know anyone in town. uh, I didn't understand how things work. So I was applying for these unpaid internships and uh, I would get word back to me like, oh, well, uh, um, I don't think that we can bring Shay on because he, he can't work phones. And like that right there, it basically automatically just put a stop to me being able to pursue an assistant career path because that's how people actually make it up in this business. So I threw myself into establishing myself as a script reader and a story analyst. And I was able to to eventually prove that even if I wasn't answering phones all day, I still eventually became the head of a department. So uh, 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 I guess my best advice is, is if there's a door shut in front of you, just keep finding another one. Yep. Just keep going. And I, I, I think that's something that disabled people are really, really yeah. good at because we have to do that all the time. <laughs> and I had just I had had without going into detail, I had had a, a frustrating experience in a meeting with a, a very reputable media company. And it caused me to reflect on. Most disabled people that I know, most openly disabled people that I know, 
fit into one of three buckets or maybe two of three buckets in professional life. Once you reach adulthood and get out of the school system and are, are looking for work, they're either accepting government benefits, which is absurdly egregiously low mm-hmm. and forces people into poverty, but they have to stay at that level of poverty in order to get their medical care. So they can't, they quote unquote, can't work because they have to stay. And they often, and they often income. can't get married. They can't, there's mm-hmm. Yeah. Cause if you get married, you push your net worth yeah. over the limit. Mm-hmm. You can't save, like you can have a savings account. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Or they work for explicitly for government offices or disability organizations. Or they, and this, I think this is what a lot of disabled people in entertainment do, they kind of become their own shingle, like Shay just described. Like you just, you just find your own. And so I was, I have been bucket three most of my adult life. I just kind of like was doing writing for magazines, teaching, writing classes. Uh, now I've written for a lot of different nonprofits, speeches, corporate stuff. And so you just sort of patch all this stuff together. Now, what that tells me is those are the kind of people that you would want I would think in a writer's space where people are always drawing from ideas or collaborating with other people. But I think this is also a very, I think this is really a fear-based business. And I think that disability takes a lot of the brunt of the fear of what people expect in a professional space because they're just not used to working with disabled people because they haven't had those opportunities before. On, On a show that I worked on, one of my favorite people on the job mentioned to me at one point, that they'd never worked with a disabled person before, at least as far as they knew. It could have been somebody that wasn't open about it. But, And this is someone that had worked in TV for 11 years. So I remember having two thoughts at the same time. One was like, wow, good for me for breaking through. This is amazing. <laughs> and the second one was like, wow, that's really shitty. You, I mean, it's not her you fault. You closed the door behind me, but... you, David. <laughs> <laughs> but how can, how can you thrive professionally in, in a space for 11 years and never run into someone that's part of the, one of the largest underrepresented communities in in the world. Never run into like a quarter that, of the population. Yeah, right. Yeah, right. That tells you more about the 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 industry than it does about any individual yeah. person. You know. Yeah, but hopefully we're changing that every day. So yeah. what I'm taking away from this conversation is to be fear be fearless, be thoughtful, be empathetic, and yeah. be accountable for the ways that you fail and can succeed in the future. Yes. Yeah, I love that. Well, thank you. Thank you all of you so much for, oh. for joining us today. Obviously, yeah, we could be having a four-hour conversation. We could. <laughs> we could keep going. Uh, we're going to cut it here for now. Thank you so much. Yeah. Thanks so much. And and thanks for taking an interest yeah. in this topic. Yeah, of to course. Begin we can't with, thank you enough. Yeah. I just always want to, like, kiss the feet of anyone who's like, by the way, disability, what is it? <laughs> Yay. Yeah. They, they mentioned Yay. us. So yeah. we appreciate you guys, you know, <laughs> being really intentional about about having us on and, and speaking about this community it means the world. Thanks so much to Kelsey Rauber for our theme music, Kaylee Brown for our podcast art, Ezra Lee for editing this episode, and to all of you for listening. Links to learn more about them and our guest are in our episode description. And thank you to our booby VIPs who are our $10 supporters on Patreon. That's Kim Garland, Amanda Blunt. Anthony Epp, Kelsey Rauber, Norman Steinberg, and Brandy Nicole Payne. If you want your name on that list and or you want to have access to all of our bonus resources related to each and every podcast episode we post for free, you can subscribe for as little as $3 to our Patreon at patreon.com slash breakingoutpod. Or join our free newsletter where we share a new creative prompt each month. Next episode, we chat with Sav Rogers of the Trans Film Center. Be sure to tune in.